Sales conversations where both buyers and sellers win are rare and plagued by the cringe. We've all felt it. It's that sinking feeling that both buyer and seller get when the conversation is going off the rails. My name is Adam Clay. I'm the CEO of Rainmakers. I've spent 25 years building and leading global sales organizations and thinking about the sales conversation. At The Cringe, we put the sales conversation under the microscope and explore pathways to ensuring that sales reps, leaders, and managers conduct great sales conversations. Today, my guest is Jim Sparadolozzi, Senior Vice President of Revenue at the Predictive Index. Jim, welcome to the show. Thanks, Adam. Great to be here. So tell us a little bit about Predictive Index and the kind of sales conversations you have. Sure. Happy to. Uh, so the Predictive Index is actually a pretty old company. We've been around since 1965, and we were founded on the idea of helping businesses use science to create the best performant teams. Um, and so uh, I've used uh, the Predictive Index uh, in my own career to build sales teams, which I think we'll, we'll talk a little bit about today. Uh, but organizations of any size can use Predictive Index to bring behavioral science to their hiring, uh, their leadership development, their team design, and even measuring things like employee engagement and helping those teams perform at optimal uh, at optimal rates. Thank you. Now, Jim, you and I have known each other for for some time, and and we've had the yeah. pleasure of working with one another in a couple of companies. And I know that you've got strong opinions about the conversation. So I want to dive right in with, with the show's hallmark question, and we'll go from there. And that is, what conversational cringe have you seen or felt most acutely in the conversations that you're involved in? That's such a great question. And there's, there's just so many of them. There's just so many of them. But there, there's actually one that is... is I, I, I used to consider it a pet peeve, but as I've gotten more uh, experience, I realized this is just this is just the thing that breaks right at the beginning of your relationship with someone. All of the magic that you're trying to generate in terms of rapport, right? And we all do it. We all do it. Even I do it sometimes. We we might have done it to begin this conversation. And it is the hey, how are you doing? Hey, mm -hmm. how you doing? You ever hear a sales rep get on a call? and just try to effusively with so much energy say, hey, how you doing? I have. At, at, early in my career, and I still to this day, I coach people to do cold calling. And when you get on the, on a on a cold call and you and you, you finally get through to someone and they pick up the, that call and you go, hey, how you doing today? You ever hear that? For me, that is the most yes. cringeworthy, how many words? Hey, how are you doing? Five words. Five words that immediately take the breath and the air out of the sales call and you just see the prospect. If you ever watch you know, tape uh, or listen to recordings of sellers try to do this, you just hear it just, just like a balloon, just kind of, kind of like deflating and the other book. Oh God. I think I got a salesperson on the line. And then it turns into this. Hey, how you doing? Well, I'm doing pretty well. How are you? Well, actually I'm doing pretty well. What about you? It becomes a loop. Like we can't, you can't even get out of the, Hey, how you doing loops. And it just, it's fake. It doesn't create true rapport, and it just it just kills the energy, in my opinion. Well, so tell us a little bit more about that. You know, as I said at the top of the show, I love having these talks with you because you have strong opinions about the conversation. I'm eager that we can share those 
with the audience. So tell us a little bit more about what it is about that opening, which is probably present in many sales calls happening at this moment that, uh, that causes you to cringe. Well, it, first of all, it's fake. Um, in most cases, that sales rep is trying to sort of use the social skills that they've developed as a person, as a human being in the world, and bring that into this professional setting. And it just doesn't belong there. Um, and then it often turns into like other sort of fake, like when I'm at a party, I might be like, wow, the weather's pretty crazy. And then it turns into a weather conversation or what do you think about the Cowboys these days, right? They're a sports team here in the US. What do you think about the Cowboys? You know, you get all this like fake stuff and, and rapport is so important to the sales conversation. It's so important. We have to get it or you're not going to go very far, right? We all know that. And so nobody really teaches you, okay, well, how, how do I do that in the context of a professional setting? So we rely on these sort of social ideas that we think are going to work in this professional selling, but your buyer isn't there because they want to be your friend, in my opinion, right? Maybe maybe once in a while you make a friendship, sure. And there's nothing wrong making friends, but that's not why they're there. They're there because they have a problem and they want to see if you can help them solve it. And when you start with these sort of fake social cues and they, they get turned off immediately because they're like, all right, I'm really not here for this, you know? It's not, it's not, and you can just, you can see it when you, when you listen to it happening. Uh, and then when it turns into these other sort of like sports ball and weather conversations, that, that can really backfire in one of two interesting ways. One of them is the obvious. It doesn't work, right? So if I'm like, oh, you know, you went to uh, this college, you must love this college sport team. You know, maybe you misread me and I'm not into sports, right? So it doesn't work and it backfires because you kind of pick the wrong thing. The other way, and actually maybe the more dangerous way, is when it works. And you're like, hey, you went to Alabama, roll tide, right? And then all of a sudden, like, we could spend all of our one-hour sales call talking about Alabama and the sports teams, and we didn't get anything done, right? So we didn't really create rapport because it didn't work, or we created too much rapport and now we have a social conversation. We don't get down to business. I want to spend a little more time on this topic. Uh, and then you and I have a lot to talk about relative to the discovery process around navigating through organizations to get to people, perhaps the right people. So you've given us a, us a sense of what in rapport building causes you to cringe. So let me turn it back to you with this question. What does good rapport building then look like? And the premise based on what you said earlier, that rapport is necessary to the lower discovery resistance. Because what's going to come next is a conversation, Q&A between buyer and seller. So what is good rapport, Jim? So I can go right into what is good rapport, but what's going to happen there is I'm going to talk too much about the words you say, maybe the tone you use. And I'll do that okay. for you in just a second. All right. But Great. Good rapport starts first from understanding your role in the conversation. Right, your role isn't the friend. Your role isn't the mother. Your role isn't uh, the salesperson. Actually, one of the number one mistakes that salespeople take in a sales conversation is like, my role here is the salesperson, and then all of a sudden you're like transported into the role of the the person. No offense to anyone doing this work; it's good work, but the person at Best Buy uh, trying to push extended warranties on someone. Right, that's not what you're trying to do. You're not trying to push anything on anyone in a in a in a sort of a high-end professional what what i do software sales but other sort of high-end consulting high-end hardware anything that has any level of complexity your role is not the salesperson so they think well what, what could the role be 
well, what, what is it you're really trying to do in the role of a salesperson or in the role that you're taking in a sales call? And so I like to say your role is to help your buyer, if you can, make a positive change for their business. Now, okay, what does that mean, right? So, so you're, you're really talking about, especially like the first, okay, the first call where you might be, hey, how you doing? How's the weather? Trying to get that rapport. Your role is to establish yourself as somebody who can help them potentially make a positive change for their business. And then I think, well, who else does that? in the world who else when you go out there in the world and you think how can i model myself after somebody who isn't a salesperson a friend what i found is the best role model for salespeople when they're thinking about the role and how they're going to behave is a therapist because in the world at large the people that we interact with the most that are there to help us make a positive change in our lives are our therapists now adam you probably see a therapist i know i see a therapist i recommend it to everybody and as a salesperson, go see a therapist just to learn, just to learn what they're doing. And you'll notice that they don't come in hot with, hey, how you doing? They might sit back in their chair and say, how's it been? What have you been thinking about? And they'll stay calm. And, and they'll, they'll likely, if they're any good at their job, be just dripping with empathy for you, just, just exuding curiosity about you. And that's the role you're looking to to to. Uh, to enter into when you take off that sales hat and you put on a business therapist hat so you can sit back and you can say, oh, hey, Adam, you look pretty busy. And it's not those words. It's the tone. It's the body language. You can, I mean, by the way, I got this this hand position from you, but it's very therapist-like, isn't it? Like, no. Uh, yeah. Now, I've already started building rapport with what is called an empathetic statement. You look stressed. You look harried. Uh, you look like you're reading a lot, actually, in this particular setting. Uh, so saying something about someone that shows that you're paying attention to them, that you're observing them, especially as you as much as you can on an emotional level. And in a, busy, a business setting, when you don't really know someone, it can be a little bit dangerous to say the wrong thing. So keeping it simple with, you must be pretty busy. It's a great way to just get started having someone say, oh, wow, you're paying attention to me. You care about me. You're thinking about me. You're sort of like the way my therapist is when I go into their office, and I like that. I feel like I'm going to be heard now. Jim, I really appreciate that perspective, and I've heard you draw that analogy before. For people in the audience, it might be a newer one. And since you first shared with me, I have thought a fair amount about, and I was speaking to somebody um, a few weeks ago who said, as salespeople, it's our responsibility to give buyers comfort in expressing themselves freely, frankly, and fully. And so what I think you're saying is as a seller, we have a responsibility to put people as ease, at ease. Now, we do. I, have to, I have to ask for your perspective on what you just said and did. You said, you know, looks like you're pretty busy. I know you well enough to know that when you would say that to somebody, you're saying it with full sincerity and full authenticity. Sure. And there's a very fine line when we get into these conversations with sales leaders who have convictions about how things ought to be done. And the fine line is between sincere, authentic inquiry and sales trick. And so 
part of the cringe is helping people stay on the right side of that line. And so for people who say, that's a really good point, Jim, I want to do that. What's the work you have to do to sincerely and authentically put yourself in a position to say something like that? Yeah. Well, so there's actually a pretty fine line between salesperson and confidence person. You might call that con man. Uh, because what we're, what we're, what, when you're training salespeople to sell, just like when you're training a therapist to give therapy, you're training people on the art of influencing others, right? And you have to use tools of influence to be in a position of influence. And if you're going to help someone, uh, in this instance, make a change, and that could be, I'm a therapist, and a patient comes in with a drug or an alcohol problem, and I need to help them get off drugs and alcohol and maybe get into rehab to service that. Where I'm a, a salesperson trying to sell, and you know, in our, in our world, we have tools that help leaders become better leaders. So that means you have to be, a, 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 you know, not, not that you're a bad leader, but you have to be someone who has recognized they have improvement to make in their leadership ability. So there has to be a problem, right? Like a therapist does their job around, what is the problem to solve? And am I qualified to help you set, solve it? And if we identify that together, then my job is to become your accountability partner to solving said problem, right? And to do all that as a therapist, you have to learn how human behavior works. And you have to learn what things you could do that could break rapport, that could break trust, that could turn off your patient, as it were. Same thing with sales. If you're going to help someone make a change, improve their leadership, improve their hiring process, get their application security, posture under control, grounded in a problem, right? And the salesperson's job is to help find out what that problem is through the lens of their, their client or potential client uh, to verify that the problem situation is one that they could help with. And then essentially become an accountability partner for their client to help them make the change that they envision, the client envisions. And the difference between that and a con man who is also using all of the same tools of influence. Uh, the difference is the moral and ethical question of, am I helping you make a positive change for your purposes, or am I only interested in myself? This is exactly why I reject the idea from a sales profession perspective that salespeople are coin-operated. Have you ever heard that mm. that phrase, salespeople are coin-operated? Often. I hate, I hate that phrase for a lot of reasons. It's one of it, it's not true, because the best salespeople are truly interested in helping their clients and the money comes because they do. And I find that the best salespeople just actually want to help people. And the ones that are really just in it for the money and are coin operated don't get the best outcomes for them, for their businesses, and certainly not for their clients. They behave more like con people, but it's not the things that you do. It's the moral and ethical grounding that you come from. Thank you. I, I think those are remarkable insights. And yeah, my, my hope is that that the audience is really tuning into what you're saying because I think they're necessary. And so just to play it back, your your assumption that good selling is based upon a belief system that that you are sincerely interested in helping the buyer, easier said than done, to your point. You've given us a metaphor for how a salesperson might think of themselves, therapist. And you've talked about things that create good rapport and are consistent with what you're describing and things that can just 
put a sales call off the rails from the very jump. And so you just started to suggest uh, to my ear how you then begin the sales conversation. So I may have gotten ahead of myself by saying, hey, Jim, like I really want to talk about discovery and a few other things. But there is a bridge between everything that you just said and actually starting to ask a buyer questions that will reveal to you their situation. And that would be something like an upfront contract or a mutual agenda. And I know that you have strong opinions in this area. So if you could continue that thread into your, your thoughts about a mutual agenda and an upfront contract and how to set a stage for the conversation that follows, I think the audience will be delighted to hear it. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Uh, I think the number one concept uh, in, in sales and in therapy that I like to think about and talk about is the concept of reactants. Now, most sales leaders have never heard of reactants. You might have, because I might have mentioned it to you once in a, once or twice. But reactants is what a therapist would would call the situation when you give somebody good advice and they reject it. And they don't reject it because the advice is bad. They reject it because in giving it, you reduce their perceived autonomy or you reduce the number of choices that they think they have and you take you attempt to take away the control. So when you start with a, an upfront contract, mutual agenda, I like to call it a verbal agenda, but it's all the same idea. What you're attempting to do is establish shared control. So we're going to have a conversation. Uh, as a seller, it may be typical that buyers expect to have all the control. I'm coming in here because I'm buying something. I want to ask you some questions. So it could be as simple as sort of saying, hey, we're going to have some shared control rather than you take all the control or I take all the control. Any one party attempting to take all the control creates reactance that breaks all the rapport and causes whatever it is you're attempting to uh, cause in terms of change for your buyer to be at risk. So it's the difference between saying, in my example earlier, I think you need to go to therapy, Adam, or I think you need to go to rehab, Adam, to the difference it becomes, well, Adam, I get the sense that you're just not ready for rehab. Why, why do you think I feel that way? Right? That, that shift from telling to asking, right? And that can come as early as your upfront contract. So for those who aren't in sales, we talk about upfront contract as you know, one of the first things you do, right? You build some rapport and then we establish the rules of the call. And it could be as simple as saying, do you still have an hour? Instead of saying, I have an hour or we have an hour together. We have an hour together. Is that right? Versus do you still have the hour? Any hard stops I need to be aware of? Preserving buyer choice, right? Now, okay. you and I both believe that the most important part of the sales call for the seller is the ability to ask questions because we, I, I think we, you and I both believe that Selling is about discovery, just like I we believe do. therapy is about discovery. Right? If you ever notice your your therapist never says this is what you should do, they say what you think you should do. Sellers should be doing the this same should. thing. And so, starting with, hey, in order for me to help you, I'm going to need to ask you a lot of questions. Are you okay if I ask you a lot of questions about your business? I would suspect a therapist would do a similar thing in their in their intake meeting, right? Hey, during our sessions together, I'm going to ask you a lot of questions. Very comfortable with that. And some of them might go pretty deep. Sellers should do the same thing early in the call to establish permission so that the buyer doesn't become uncomfortable. Because if you just jump in and start saying, hey, Adam, tell me about all the deepest, darkest problems that exist at your current company that you caused. Go ahead. Go tell me. 
If you do that, you break rapport because I didn't give you a choice. But if I say, hey, Adam, I want to see if I can help you. You mind if I start by asking you some questions? Emily will be a bit difficult. Is that okay? Now I've established permission and I've given you a choice. I've preserved your autonomy and I have not triggered your reactants. At least I don't think I did. Did I? Maybe I did. You did not. You did not. You're just so, saying you're a nice guy. You're just saying that. <laughs> so, well, you know, you and I have, you know, compatible ideas uh, when it comes to the sales conversation. So I do want to spend a moment on a nuance in what you just said. You said, I have a lot of questions as part of your upfront contract. Now, between us, we've probably listened to thousands, if not tens of thousands of hours of sales conversations recorded and otherwise. And from the jump, correct me if I'm wrong, many salespeople might attempt to say, hey, I need to ask you questions, but they'll minimize it. I have a few questions. I have a couple of questions. I have a couple of quick questions. So you you are thoughtful on these matters, and I know you have strong opinions about a structured sales conversation, so I know that when you said, I have a lot of questions and we're going to spend some time on those questions. You really mean it. That's right. <clears throat> what do you think is happening when a sales rep attempts to do the same thing, but minimizes the role of questions that in the conversation? It's certainly part not understanding their role well enough. Like I'm the salesperson, therefore my job is to answer the questions. That's kind of typical. Uh, and uh, there's likely some fear. Um, there's commonly fear in, especially newer salespeople that aren't comfortable with conflict, comfortable with the idea that they need to negotiate at every 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 step. But there's this constant buyer seller dance that's happening, and it's not always going to be easy, right? Um, and so they're afraid they're going to trigger a, a reaction, a negative reaction, not not the same as reactants, but a negative reaction to the idea that. They're going to be asking some questions. Uh, they may be, they may have set the expectations incorrectly, or they may have a partner like what we call business development or sales development reps who set up these meetings, or even the company's website. If you're in the high tech business like we are, where there's a, a demo request form, and so the buyer has already requested a demo, or maybe the BDR or SDR who cold called into this executive to get the meeting on the hook, it had promised a demo. We're going to show you some cool stuff, right? So it could be fear, it could be role on misunderstanding, or it could be mis set expectations earlier in the process, all kind of combining or individually creating this need to minimize the question element. So sticking with the upfront contract or what some people call the, the mutual agenda. So you've checked in on time, you've cleared the deck of any surprise stops in the meeting, you've set the stage for asking a lot of questions, and the expectation that you'll be spending a fair amount of time in that part of the meeting. What's the next step in a good upfront contract or mutual agenda? So I didn't cover the entirety of what I consider the best. There's really five steps. There's your time. There's the buyer's goals for the call. What is the buyer hoping to get out of the call? That actually comes before you asking questions because you do want to get the, you know, it's a two-way street. Like, what are you hoping to get out of it? Okay, great. This is what I'm hoping to get out of it. Do those two things align? They often do it. Actually, it's not uncommon when you say, hey, Adam, what are, you, what are you hoping to get out of this call? That they say something that can be easily sort of turned into, okay, great. Well, I want to make sure we get there. 
in order for me to get you where you're trying to go, I'm going to need to learn more about you and therefore ask questions. Is that okay? So you can sort of relate those two. And then the last two steps, sun coming in, sorry if I'm glowing a bit, uh, but the last two steps often are combined, but I see these are two steps. There's the, the what happens with a no and what happens with a yes steps. Uh, now the what happens with the no is possibly one of the most important elements of an upfront contract and again brings us back to reactants, brings us back to reactants. So I'll give you a, a little bit of an anecdote from the world of science and I'm not actually a scientist, so pretend I didn't make all this up. There was there was a study once, and I don't know the name of the authors of the study, Adam, I know you probably know because you're much more academic than I, but in this study, uh, some researchers in France pretended they were asking to people to do a survey. So they would go up to people on the street or in a, in a, in a shop and they would say, would you complete this survey for me? Get the point, right? And about 75% of the time, it's a short survey. It's not too, not too simple, not too difficult. They would say, okay, sure. And they would complete the survey. And, and then to test how reactance works, they started saying, um, you, you, you can say no to me, but I was hoping you would complete this survey. And so they used what, what you would call the you can say no principle. I just made that up, I think. But they, they started saying, you can say no, but I was hoping you would do this survey. And the rate of people that, that completed the survey went up to 90%. Mm, so there, there's, there a, there's a significant measurable reaction that's positive for the seller if you just let the buyer know that they can say no to you. That's why that no step and the, the fourth step is so important. And so it's simple as saying, at any point during this call, or really at any time that we're going through our conversations together, if you start to get the feeling that this just isn't for you, it's not going to be a fit for any reason, I hope you would be comfortable saying to me, Jim, this isn't for me, which is to say, you could you can always say no to me because I have thick skin and I can take it. Telling someone they can say no and, and almost begging them to tell you if they're feeling that way will actually free their mind and they can say, oh, this isn't the typical salesperson that's trying to force something in. This is a bit different. Now I'm going to treat this interaction differently. I think that was very clear. And so to play it back for for the audience, you know, the five steps that you think are critical um, that rest upon a belief system that we've talked about earlier in the, the conversation would be posed in the form of a question, a check on time, a check on the buyer's goals for the meeting, presentation of your goals for the meeting, some agreement, therefore, on how time is going to be spent, your right to ask questions and why you think it's important, making it clear that no is okay. And you didn't say it, but I'm going to assume the final step of the upfront contract is, is what happens if this actually sounds good to both parties and we ought to proceed. Do I have that right? You do it. I'll just add one nuance to what happens if there's a yes. Please. Because this is Please. often missed. Because what happens okay. if there is a yes should be, we're going to build a plan together. And we need time for that. Right. So part of that sort of time element is we're going to spend the bulk of this call on you and me asking you questions. We're going to spend a little bit of the time on me and how I might be able to help you. And we're going to spend some time on building a plan together for you to evaluate this thing I'm offering, this solution, this service, whatever it is I'm, I'm, I'm trying to position for you, you need to spend a little bit of time if there's at least a, a not no situation, right? If you're not a no, then you're, you're not quite a yes necessarily, depending on how complex your sale is, 
uh, in most of the businesses I've been in, it, it's not a one and done, like one call close type situation. It's often multi-stakeholder, multi-meeting, demos, proof of concepts, and those those types of things. So you want to actually build a plan for how that's going to work. That takes time, either in the call you're in now, or we agree to make time at a later session to just focus on building our plan together. So the yes isn't yes, I'm going to buy, at least not in my world, could be in some, but it's yes, we're going to build a plan together. And that takes some time and that needs to be part of the negotiation. But you're calling out some very nuanced points that I think lie at the heart of why sales is more often than not a maligned profession. And so it has to do with this very small part of what you just laid out in an upfront contract. And that is asking what the buyer wants to accomplish in the meeting. And so you and I both work all the time with entry-level salespeople. Uh, and we have the occasion, you know, through some of the coaching work that we do in conjunction with Harvard Business School to work with people who have never sold anything but are taking courses in sales. And it's interesting because the students there are so bright and they carry with them so much conventional wisdom about what it means to have a sales conversation. What I routinely hear, and my guess would be that you hear it too, is that there is an assumption going into a generic sales call that I as the seller present my agenda and the plan and that's what we're going to do. So I have to ask you, Jim, because you're thoughtful on these matters. Now, we both know it's wrong to do that. Where does that come from? I'm sure there's a number of different places. One, one of it is there's, a, there's, a, there's an idea uh, in the world, I, I don't know if this is purely sales people, that uh, I want to be seen as smart. I don't know if there's an idea. That's just sort of a human need, right? I want other people to respect me and think I'm smart, right? And when you get into a sales role, you have to get over that need, <laughs> right? Because it, it, in order to sound smart, you have to be talking a lot and saying things that sound smart. But in order to be an effective therapist, you have to be shut up and ask questions. And some of those questions are just dumb questions. And by dumb, I mean that they're not, they're not stupid to ask. They're actually incredibly smart to ask these just questions like you asked me earlier. Tell me a little bit more about that. But it doesn't take a lot of thought to come up with that question, right? And so uh, it, it, that goes all the way back to your upfront contract or your, your diagnostic questions, all the way through to how we describe the solution. People tend to have this overwhelming desire to be seen as smart, and so sometimes they'll use bigger words than normal. They'll use more words than normal. Uh, they'll talk in like circles a bit just to like keep going, you know, being the being the smart one in the room, right? And that absolutely shows up when you have really smart students at Harvard Business School because not only do they want to be seen as smart, they're there at Harvard Business School to get smarter. And then when you tell them, hey, you just need to shut up and go tell me more about that. And I find myself with yeah. those students in particular saying, could you just do the thing that we said you're going to do? And then and they're, all, they're all trying to over-engineer and, and build some new thing out of it, right? And, and that's cool. But if you're, in a, if you're in a sales meeting trying to create the best question in the world, then you, all your mental energy is on you and thinking about what's the best question that's going to make me seem like the smartest person in this yeah. room. And in sales, the job isn't that. It's to make the other person feel like they're the smartest person in the room. Your job isn't to be the hero. Your job is to make your client a hero. And if you're focused on that, you're helping them. If you're focused on you being the hero, you're helping you. 
but that doesn't get a sale done. It doesn't help make a positive change for the business. And it's certainly not going to make you any money if that's part of what you're there for. Can I just challenge something you said there? It's a minor no, semantic no, you're not, point. You're not allowed. Possibly. You're not. I'm no, not. Allow, no challenge. <laughs> okay. Tell you what, since it's you. That's pretty, that's pretty high it. reactance. That's I'll pretty high it. reactance <laughs> for somebody who just asked a very innocent question. <laughs> of course you can. Course so it's a nuanced point. I agree with everything that you just said, but you did say it's your job to make the other person feel smart. I'm going to take you to task on that in the context of sure. a sales conversation and a belief system. And it's interesting that we're having this discussion right now because I found myself in the past couple of weeks telling entry-level sellers and some of the students I work with at HBS that it's not your job to make the other person feel smart. It's your job to recognize that when it comes to their business and their problem that they're trying to solve, the reason they're talking to you, they are smart and you are dumb. You don't know anything That's about right. what they have to say. And to put the finest point on it it is possible. And this is difficult, I think, for particularly bright salespeople to hear. It's our job to be dumb. Because even if I just came out of a meeting with a company that looked a lot like yours, Jim, you're the buyer, I'm the seller, and I think I know everything, I don't. I don't. I genuinely have to discover it. And if you carry into a sales conversation some belief that you really don't know anything and you are genuinely dumb, although that's a bit of a harsh word, when it comes to the customer's problem, the conversations typically flow better. So tell me if you agree with that. And of course, it's okay if you don't. It is certainly not let make them feel smart because they, they, likely they're business leaders if you're trying to sell to them, right? And likely they've been successful in their careers. They're successful at their companies. That's why they're in a position to buy from you. So it, it's very, very likely that they're very smart. Uh, and it's not even about smart. It's more about knowledgeable. Yeah. Right? Knowledgeable so is the better word. You're yeah. knowledgeable as the as the buyer. I'm ignorant as the seller, and ignorant has different meanings. There you go. But the, the word ignorant means lacking the knowledge, right? That's what it should mean. So if you, mm -hmm. if you say, "I don't really know what you," uh, tell me more. Then then you're doing mm -hmm. it the right way. So you're you're 100. All right. That I love that. I I think that's an enhancement of what I said. I I prefer that to to knowledge. I prefer knowledgeable and ignorant to smart and dumb in the context of this. This conversation like so well like well said jim so jim as as you know in the cringe we always wrap up conversations with guests role-playing their ideas so the audience can can hear them so you just took us through the the mechanics of an upfront contract uh quickly because i don't think these things take a lot of time run us through a complete upfront contract from one end to the other as jim sparadolozzi sees it happy to let's just jump right in so right. Adam, do we still have the the one hour that we we planned for? We do. Hey, what was, what's one thing you want to make sure you get out of this call? Yeah, I really I really want to understand, Jim, how you've helped organizations like ours in the past because our or, our industry is quite unique, and uh, what we find is that is that one size with software like yours doesn't fit all. So I'd like to hear about how you've helped other companies like ours. Absolutely. And I agree. One size does not fit all. So I, I was hoping to learn more about your organization just to see if we even have a fit. Are you comfortable okay. if I ask you a bunch of questions just to get us started and then I'll share some more information about our clients? Yeah, that sounds good. Cool. Now, what we talk about at PI is something called talent optimization. 
it's a business discipline that's not for everyone. Uh, so I hope if you're if you're hearing what talent optimization is all about at any point during our interactions, if you think, hey, this just isn't for me, that you'd be willing to tell me that you're feeling that way. Are you comfortable saying, hey, Jim, this isn't for me at any point when you when you feel that way? I I am. I am. Oh, cool. Let's tell you what, in the off chance that toward the end of this call, I stop and say, do you want to pursue this any further? And you don't say no. Uh, is it okay if we take about 10 minutes at the end of the call to build a plan for you to evaluate the entirety of the solution and really make that final determination as to whether or not it's right for you? Uh, yeah. So at the end of the call, we'll carve out some time for next steps if there's a reason to even do them. Sure. That if sounds there is. good. Yeah, that's right. Thanks, Adam. Appreciate it. All right, let's jump in. All right, and role play. My guest today has been Jim Sparadolozzi, Senior Vice President of Revenue with the Predictive Index. Jim, it was a pleasure speaking with you, and thank you so much for your time. Great to be here. If you've enjoyed listening, follow me, Adam Clay, on LinkedIn. I'm regularly sharing insight and tips on the art of sales and the sales conversation. This podcast is produced and presented by Rainmakers, where we believe the sales conversation is everything. Check us out online at rnmkrs.com.